Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. I'm so eager to have this conversation with my new friend, Ahad Gadimi, who was introduced to me by my brother, Eric Elkins. And um, it was all in the context of my no longer virtual event that happened on March uh, third and fourth this year in Park City, Utah in 2022. And uh, my brother introduced me and I immediately went out and bought Ahad's book, um, The Turnaround Artists, and just completely fell in love with this parable of leadership and um, turning around that command and control style of leadership to make it more effective for people who know what they're doing and that you can trust that they're doing it. Um, Ahad, thank you so much for joining me for Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will. Thank you, Max. Excited to, to be here with you. And I've um, been thinking a lot about the, the question you asked. You know, I mean, uh, I spent so much time kind of digging into like the bottom five and ten, top 5% of my experiences and experiences of others. And so to sort of think about you know, what is that thing that uh, not very many people know about me? Uh, it's been kind of a pretty, pretty, pretty interesting and introspective exercise. Oh, good, good. So I'm assuming you have something in your head for this that you can share? You know, it, it came to me this morning, the, the story that came to me, it's actually an image and it's an image of me. I think it was like senior kindergarten or grade one. And I was getting an autograph. Someone was signing an autograph for me. And um, it was actually at school that this person was signing autographs. And in fact, I was going around getting autographs from um, from, from everyone. And uh, so a lot of people don't know about me is, so I'm the son of um, a refugee. My, my, my father uh, left Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, came to Canada. Um, and, uh, it, it, and we had to move pretty often, you know, every time sort of um, parents had to start from scratch, but every time things got a little bit better, we, we moved and so we moved into a better home into a better neighborhood into, you know, and I think somewhere along that line, I guess I developed the um, capacity to make friends quickly and understand, you know, how to sort of build relationships quickly, because it wasn't just that the, um, like I said, it, it was, we, we weren't just moving home, but we were moving like neighborhoods and you know, as I think about it now, socioeconomic sort of stratospheres every single time. I don't know where the thought came, but somehow asking people for their autographs made them really like you. I guess it just really validated them. <laughs> Nobody asks 
people for their autographs, you know, unless they're like a celebrity. And uh, so that's something I, um, I guess that nobody knows about me. You know, I guess it's kind of how and where I think I started developing my um, ability to adapt and to build relationships quickly and build trust uh, and connections um, very early on. Wow. I love that. I'm imagining you as a little boy, just walking around with an autograph book and asking people. And, you know, the, I think the first thought is woo, which is strengths finder winning others over. Yeah. And um, my younger son has woo and he makes friends everywhere. And at first, when I first saw woo in my top 10, it's my number six. My first thought was, oh, that's, that's the fake part. You know, that's the part that just wants everybody to like them. And um, and I know people with woo and positivity that that's how it comes across sometimes if you don't know that that's just who they are. That's their natural capacity. But what really struck me in recent years is the way woo is used for people who really care about other people because it's different. The strengths finder characteristics are how, what motivates us, but they don't say anything about our character. Mm. They don't say anything about our values necessarily. And what I find is that people with Wu who have strong sense of responsibility and care and compassion, what that Wu looks like is an ability to make whoever is in front of you feel really seen and heard and valued. Mm. That's why Wu is so charming. And that's what you were doing with your autographs. It's not like you were doing it with this strategic um, manipulation to get people to like you. It was you really, truly wanted their autograph. You wanted to know more about them. You wanted to make them feel good about themselves. And you it wasn't a conscious thing as a kid, but you knew that when people felt good about themselves, they were nicer and they were easier to be around and they would be your friend. And that's my interpretation of watching you as a little boy signing or getting autographs from your classmates and teachers. So I agree with you. Absolutely. And, and, and that fear of like, I don't know, not being authentic or not, or sort of being contrived, uh, it comes up a lot. So, so my book, Turnaround Artists, um, it's actually, so it, it's a business book that's written like a novel, but it's actually a textbook in the sense that, um, I'd say 97% of people who read it, read it with their teams um, or read it within uh, an organization. And, uh, and it's a story about a family business that falls into chaos when the, when the patriarch gets into an accident and the son has to kind of begrudgingly come home and take over the business when he swore he'd ne- he never would. And, um, and so they go through this process of learning how to really uh, strengthen the relationships and how to work well together to save this business because they're going to have to all kind of lean into it. And so each chapter, there's a different exercise or a tool that they uh, apply together. And one of them is, um, is giving positive praise. And it's interesting because when, when I noticed when individuals, teams go through this, people are always apprehensive about, coming off as being insincere or it's like kind of checking a box when they're giving someone positive praise and um, and it being like a contrived exercise. And uh, just sort of listening to you, 
you know, what, what it makes me realize, I guess something that I've just sort of known, but um, is that if you're not sincere and you don't really, if you're not really interested in people, if you're not, if you don't really care, people will know very quickly, if not immediately. So, you know, you can't really, uh, so there's nothing really to be afraid of. You know, if you mean it, you know, if you mean, you know, the positive praise or your interest or your um, affection for, for people, they'll just know. And I think that's, what's really interesting about human beings is that we have these, these other, these six senses that uh, these gut feelings that really um, guide us and tell us when something's real and it isn't. And often it's people say, it's, you know, I can't really put my finger on it, but you know, I feel a connection here or, or, or I don't, you know? So mm-hmm. as long as someone feels authentic, I think that's really all it really takes, you know, the rest of it kind of um, works itself out. Right. It kind of makes me wonder too, when part of our fear of giving praise and having it appear contrived is that we have such a hard time accepting praise. And so giving it, we're concerned of how it'll be taken. Does that kind of resonate? Yes. I mean, I find um, people are actually quite, uh, it's actually quite vulnerable to be, to, to, to give positive praise, you know, to whether it's, I don't know, the, the, the guy at the deli making you, uh, you know, makes a, just a, an incredible sandwich and you want to just share it with them. There's something kind of raw um, and vulnerable um, about it. Uh, I think, I think it's because it, it opens the other person up too. So there's, there's this kind of shared experience uh, this rawness that gets created. Um, and you're right. There is also this, this, this fear of how the person might, re- what if the person doesn't respond well, what if the person takes it the wrong way? What if, uh, what if it's misconstrued? And so there is a risk uh, I- involved in, uh, in offering that sort of reflection to people. And, you know, in our, you know, in our work, a lot of what we look to do is uh, practice. And, and to take these these little behaviors, these when I say little behaviors, I mean sort of um, little in the sort of time it takes, you know, but huge in the impact it makes. Um, these these sort of micro actions um, and turn them into um, habits where it's just through practice and just doing it more and more, and it gets more. It's more comfortable, and yeah, maybe one out of ten times maybe less someone might it, it might um might not land the way we expect it to or we intended it to exactly and, what uh, i was thinking yeah mm-hmm. but you know it's um you know for me personally i i think the 9 out of 10 times you, you know far outweighs it that experience <laughs> i think also in this sort of process of getting more um kind of raw and and real and kind of tapping into these feelings that we have that, but often can be afraid of. Uh, I think we also develop a lot of sort of uh, compassion also. So if someone, you know, if you, if you give someone like authentic, good, positive praise and they can't receive it, you know, I think uh, one develops the, the compassion to understand, wow, like there's just, there's just, there's something going on 
that this person can't even receive like a gift or can't receive, can't be seen. Um, so it becomes less about uh, taking that personally, you know, as a person who's. Right. It's not about you no, it's not in like that you. case. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking about those times when somebody can't seem to accept it because there's something else going on in their lives or they've been criticized about that talent in the past. And so you're kind of you're ripping off a scab, right? Because you're saying, oh, this is your talent. You're, this is your magic. You're so good at this. And they're like, everybody has teased me about this for the my entire life or given my ex-husband, that's his biggest criticism of me. So you're like hitting this nerve totally unintentionally. And then I, I'm curious about when, um, I, I think we have to practice accepting those ourselves. I just had this conversation with a good friend of mine that a woman that generally has not reached out to her, reached out to her with a resource and said, here's something I thought you might be interested in. And then she complimented her. And my friend, you know, her first thing is kind of to dismiss that compliment mm. instead of welcoming it and embracing it and owning it and just saying, thank you with grace. So where do you see that as part of that whole significance of, of praising people and then accepting it yourself? This is a wonderful, you're, you're bringing up a wonderful topic, one that I've experienced personally, you know, sort of the receiving end and on sort of the giving end. Um, I think what happens is there's like a belief somewhere that gets created, whether it's, and it's typically as a result of an experience or a feedback, like you mentioned that, that, that someone gets, um, I'll give you one for me is, you know, somewhere along the line, someone told me I was a terrible singer. And so admittedly, it still makes me apprehensive to sing, you know, I want the karaoke, maybe I'll be like a backup singer in karaoke, but like, you know, I, <laughs> I, I like singing, you know? Um, and it also makes me think of, uh, so many times people whom I've given um, feedback, positive or positive reflection um, to, and, um, and it's almost as if they reject it. Like they won't, they, they won't even, not that I'm looking for a thank you, but they won't, you know, by virtue of them not saying thanks or just like ignoring it or changing the subject or whatever. Yeah, dismissing they, you and your thought about them, right. which is kind of painful. You know, it is because it's, uh, I guess when I'm not careful, I could take it personally and I could think, hello, I'm like, maybe they'd be like, oh, that's a nice compliment. And, and my reaction response has been like, it's not a compliment. Like, I'm not, you know, I take a lot of pride in my sincerity, frankly, you know, and I just, I'm, I take a lot of pride in um, saying what I mean um, and, uh, and, and, and being real about it. And so even when I say it to someone, I had a friend, uh, and I would, you know, I'd say things like that, and he'd be like, oh, he, you know, he, he'd call it butter. He goes, oh, that's New Zealand butter. That's like, so you're so, it, and it was not a really ouch. nice feeling. Yeah, it was kind of an ouch, right? I'm like, I actually really mean that, you know? And it took me some time to realize, wow, it's like really has nothing to do with me. Um, but for whatever reason that there's just not an opening for that to land with that person. And, and I think what it is, is I think there's like the, it's, it's incongruent with a belief they have themselves, mm. you know? And I think, um, and I've had to learn this as a leader also, because I think one of my superpowers as a leader is um, I have like x-ray vision. I could see 
talent potential in someone um, could be talent potential that they may not see for years or beyond or ever. Like it's really, I can really hone in on it and it could even seem irrational, but it's for me, it's as plain as day. And I think what I've had to learn is um, when to offer that feedback and when to offer that, because it, it could be just too much. It could just be too much for that person to have um, at that moment. And there's even, especially if it's like team members or people that I work with and, um, you know, I really, I, I'm very passionate about mentoring. I'm very passionate about people, especially my team members growing um, rapidly. You know, for me, like, you know, in, in businesses that I run, I was always so excited about the, the you know, the, the receptionist who becomes the HR director, like that, for right. me, that, you know, that for me is so. Did that happen? Oh, that's happened. Yeah. That's happened a lot. Tell, tell me that story. I want to hear that story. Yeah. There's um, in one manufacturing facility uh, that I was leading. Uh, it was a turnaround uh, part of the country. It was t- tough to find great talent. And uh, we were looking for, we we're looking to really create a powerful culture and um, in the, and in turnarounds, what something that happens when you change culture is people often ask me if I have to like fire people a lot. In ironically, no, actually, when you start really changing the culture, the people who are are on the bus and really want a positive, engaging, highly collaborative, authentic culture, at first they can't even believe it's real, and then when they realize it is, they're all in and they recruit their friends. Then you've got another camp of people who you know, very respectfully, it's not what they signed up for. They signed up for maybe how it was before, whatever that looked like. And that happened in this circumstance where the, um, let's call the incumbent HR director, the person who was there when I arrived, eventually just uh, resigned. Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember the the receptionist was like, I said, look, you know, we need to find someone else. I'm like, please draft up like a, a job, you know, job description and post it in these different areas. And she said, well, can I throw my hat in the ring? And uh, and it was interesting because I'd, I'd been leaning on this person a lot and giving her more and more responsibilities. And the more responsibility I gave her and the more she came through, the more trust and faith I had and, and really enjoyed working with her. And um, and so I said, look, we, we need someone immediately and here's what it looks like. And you can help with these roles till we find that person or if you fill it in with these sort of expectations um maybe it could be you you know so i saw it and i like i knew that the possibility was there but you know for me it was really about sort of partnering with that person and being really clear what like that the the expectations are and what that role looks like because this is a person who had never fulfilled a role like that before. Right. Um, we, we, we sponsored her to do a course and, um, and it was kind of a race, you know, she was either, she was going to, we're going to fill the role or she was going to fill it herself. Uh, and that's, a, that's what ended up happening. And um, it was amazing about it. It's funny. She actually just reached out a few months ago and we hadn't sort of been in contact for, for, for many years. Um, but what was amazing about it was um, just the level of commitment she had in the role and how you can just tell, you know, if you think like Maslow's pyramid of needs, like mm-hmm. there was self-actualization there, you know, she right, was right. like fulfilling something that, um, 
you know, she uh, may or may not have ever had as a goal or believe that she can do, you know, and I think, I think largely um, it had to do with the culture that we were building where, you know, it was really sort of predicated on a lot of psychological safety and trust where if, if you have an opinion or if you have an idea, or if you have a concern, you're free to share it and you weren't going to be judged by it. You weren't going to be, um, there wasn't going to be any sort of um, retaliation. You know, it was, people were, were, were really encouraged to uh, to be self-expressed and, you know, granted I, that can be very scary for people because with that comes, you know, especially as a, as a, as a business leader, you might hear a lot of things you not you might not like, you know, but right. for me, those are the things to, that sort of live in the in the blind spots. Yeah, and you have to do something with that information as a leader. It's not just acknowledging it's being said, but if you open it up, you know that that means that you have to either consider the idea and give good reason why not, or consider the idea and make a change, which can also be uncomfortable. Hundred percent. I think one of the downsides of being a leader, and the more senior you get, is is often not always, but there's less accountability. Give less people to respond, answer to, um, especially if you don't have a board or if you don't have investors. Like, and so I think often um, I think that's there's an opportunity for people to be accountable to people that they that don't control sort of their job security. So that means being accountable to the employees, being accountable right. to the people you're engaging. So that's basically what you're saying is, you know, if you ask for a feedback, you have to be willing to do something with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's actually what makes the best kind of leader is that they realize that the people that report to them, you, you are accountable to them. You're holding their jobs in your hands, which means um, the majority of the hours of their day and the stress that can come back to their homes and their families. And I mean, that is the best leaders I know, know that. And they, they take that responsibility really seriously. Yes. And those are the leaders who have the highest level of retention. Yes. You know, exactly. And that's, that's meaningful today. Two years ago, three years ago, plus it wasn't that meaningful because people were like, well, if someone leaves, there's, 10 other people waiting in the wings, you know, to, to replace her job. What those people often didn't realize is really the, the true cost and the impact yes. of, um, of losing people. Uh, but that, you know, fast forward to, you know, 2022, you know, sort of in the wake of a great resignation where talent is so hard to find. Those are the leaders that you mentioned are the ones that are winning because just by virtue of who they are and how they lead, a, people realize how rare that is to have a leader who mm-hmm. um, helps you feel like you belong, helps you feel like you're supported, helps you feel like you're growing um, and uh, and do that very naturally. And people who've been working for a little bit of time realize how rare that is. So if you come across a leader like that, often people don't want to leave because uh, <laughs> to come by. Well, that's why I'm self-employed. If I had found a leader like that, as a matter of fact, I interviewed for a job shortly before I was giving my notice at my last full-time job. And my husband said, but I thought you wanted to work for yourself. I said, hell no. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to have to do business development and bookkeeping and payroll. I don't want to do all those things. I would much rather have 
somebody hire me to do exactly what I do so well and, yes. and be accountable to that. Um, there are very few people that do self-employment really well. It's right. hard. It's You're really right. hard. Yeah, so right. I hear you. And um, one of the things that popped into my head as you're telling the story of this receptionist is that what you were doing was giving her these baby steps to not to prove to you because you already saw the potential, but for her to be able to prove to herself that she could start building up that evidence of her capacity, her knowledge, her ability to learn and her resourcefulness. That's what you were building in her, even though you already saw it. Absolutely. That's and that's a really important distinction, actually, that you're making, because what I've learned, uh, you know, my experiences is that the fact that I believe in it is maybe fifty percent at best. You know, important. Mm-hmm. It's um, that person. How much that person really believes in that their their willingness to um, to act on that belief and to sort of lean into it, to take the risks, you know, and all that. That's that's the thing that really uh, makes the difference, you know. That's the thing that's going to really cause them to really sort of act on um, their, um, you know, their, their, their hopes and aspirations and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So um, a couple of things that popped into my head as you were talking about the receptionist one thing was about the book. And when you said, when you're doing this turnaround and you're shifting culture in such a significant way that um, you don't have to fire people because normally they're either on the bus or they choose to get off it. You don't have to make that decision for them. And um, I saw some of that in your book with one of the characters in particular that was um, really dismissive of the idea of sharing that level of vulnerability. I can't remember his name. It wasn't Leroy, was it? Darius. Darius. Okay. So Darius in the book, he um, he's the one that's resistant to it. Um, they're, they're all hesitant, but Darius is the only one that's seriously resistant. And as I was reading the book, I love that he comes around because, you know, who doesn't want a happy ending? I didn't see that coming. I kind of saw him being one of the ones that is like, this is not what I signed up for. I don't like this level of vulnerability. Um, I like you, but I'm out of here. And then having his um, sous chef, the guy that quit in the beginning because he was being yelled at, I kind of saw the, the way that I saw the plot of the story coming back is that he ends up coming in because he loves the new culture, the idea. So tell me about how that happened. I know this is a real life story. Um, so did you lose anyone when you did that turnaround at that restaurant? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, for like narrative narrative purposes in the book, it's, uh, you know, we've got a, kind of a set of characters that we go through, but, oh, it, uh, it's, it's, it's inevitable actually to, mm-hmm. to lose people. Um, look, one of, one of two things happens is that um, either people actually like very, very, uh, are very candid and they'll say, this is like, I'm not into this. I, I don't want to. And so Darius in the story was a little bit that way. Mm-hmm. Um, or, 
people kind of go through the motions. That's a little bit tougher, you know, and people kind of, they go through the motions because maybe they just, they just need the job. They're, you know, yeah, they're, that's worse. Yeah, that's worse. It's insipid. Right, exactly. And, and, and what makes that particularly worse actually is for um, the leaders. I'm actually thinking of an example, certain company, uh, you know, they went through Turnaround Artists, actually the, the, the book and the program. And one of the senior members um, was not willing to, um, he was kind of going through the motions. And then eventually, you know, when he was called out, he actually flat out said, you know, I don't, I just don't think someone in my role should be vulnerable or be open or be authentic. So it was, it, it, it was a, a difference in philosophy, a difference in belief in, you know, what leadership looks like and how they should um, be showing up in a leader. And frankly, I, uh, as I think back to like a manufacturing facility that I ran um, where 60% of the employees were ex-cons and, um, and, my, and my predecessor, the previous president was very sort of toxic, acidic personality. Uh, and he'd yell at people a lot. I remember just saying to them when I took over, I said, look, no one's ever going to be disrespected here. Everyone starts with an A and maybe not everybody's going to keep the A and maybe some people will be asked to leave. And, and that does happen. Actually, we do let people go for sure. But, um, but it's always, it, it, What's really important is it's how it's done, you know, and, it, and are people treated with respect um, in, in acknowledging that it's not what people signed up for. And not everybody has to sort of believe in perhaps what you and I believe, Sarah, and, you know, a certain way of leading um, a certain culture, certain sort of values. Some people have a um, different value system or a different experience of what that should look like. And I think, Part of that is is accepting that and accepting that we're just, you know, this may no longer be the right place um, for that person. Mm -hmm. Have you ever experienced being able to um, find a middle ground with someone like that? I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what a middle ground really looks like in that in that in that respect. You know, I've. Uh, it does seem somewhat, you know, just in my experiences, it does seem, I think the middle ground is maybe someone who's in a process. So you've got people who are, look, I mean, they're, 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 they're showing up to, you know, we have these like form style meetings where people, um, that's what the book sort of uh, helps create is a certain style of a meeting where people are um, sharing their experiences or what we call the top five and bottom 5% of their experiences and, um, and just becoming more real and sharing more about themselves. So when we do that, there's no um, yardstick as to, well, that wasn't quite authentic or real or vulnerable. That wasn't deep enough for that us. That wasn't deep enough. No. You got to go deeper. <laughs> right. So yeah. there is, so there are different people sort of on their process, people who are more comfortable than others, people who are more willing to lean into it than others. Ultimately, yeah, I guess the question is, is, is there like a will? Are people growing? Are people pushing at their sort of comfort zones uh, a little bit every time? And, and you can tell versus someone who's just not willing to um, get on the dance floor at all. Yeah, you could be on the side of the dance right. floor still, you know. Right. make your way towards the middle, but it's, but, but it becomes pretty obvious for whatever reason. Um, 
the distinction between people who are just not just not willing to to um to engage you know right and the reason i ask that and just to kind of back up so our listeners understand the context of my question is that um yeah i am a big proponent of diverse teams and by diverse i mean diversity of thought and so there are people who are still in the old school command and control leadership style and i'm having a hard time kind of finding this um contradiction. I am finding a contradiction here internally. Like, how do we take these people along for the ride? And and you're right. I love your answer because it sounds to me like as long as they are self-reflecting, as long as they are um, understanding where they're getting in their own way, or at least starting to question whether what they're doing is the most effective way to do it Mm. and still being authentic to themselves. And the reason this comes up for me is because I I am a very practical person. I don't consider myself a touchy feely kind of coach. Mm. And um, when I start hearing a lot of emotion in certain places, I notice that I start to get a little hesitant. Um, I get a little uncomfortable Now, I've been doing this for a long time, so I know this about myself and I know what to do in order to address it internally because it's not about the other person. If I'm uncomfortable, it's about me. Mm. And I know that when I'm working with coaching clients who are more practical and less on the emotional side, this kind of conversation could make them really uncomfortable. And I love your answer that as long as there is growth, as long as there is an interest in taking in different ideas, then then there's a place for that person. Absolutely, because like what's what's so in diverse teams and diversity ideas, you know, which is you know I believe is the uh, the best driver to innovation. If you have mm-hmm. seven people who are thinking about the exact same thing, you don't need seven of them; you need one. But if you have seven different people who have different experiences, uh, perspectives, sensibilities. And they feel comfortable to share, to bring in all their their diverse experiences and sensibilities, and not feel like they have to be one homogenous group, which is what we tend to do. Uh, you know, as, as humans, we just want to sort of we match each other, especially if we don't feel comfortable or safe. Um, but the question is, how do you do that? How do you create that space so that person who comes from the other side of the world, who speaks different, looks different, sounds different? It's like you've got you have something to offer that nobody else in this room does. It's so different, and um, from an innovation standpoint, we see it all the time. Red Bull was a drink that was just was kind of a regular drink in, in Thailand. Someone cross pollinated, brought it over to to um, the Western world, and it became a huge hit. You know, because someone saw something different, unique in a different environment. Um, so how do we cultivate that with people? It's trust, you know, it's creating trust. And um, if anybody who's ever been in a relationship knows that it doesn't happen with one conversation, you know, it doesn't happen. Um, it, it's a process to build trust. And so the the first thing that I do as a turnaround artist and, um, and also what we look to do with our uh, training platform is two things is to 
A, help create trust amongst a group, but B, and more importantly, is to teach them how to create trust and teach them, excuse me, how to understand how to become aware of the their their behaviors and how their behaviors are, um, which behaviors are uh, eroding trust, even if and often it's unbeknownst to them. Nobody nobody decides to like erode trust or to like to to make themselves untrustworthy. But there's a lot of behaviors and actions that people do unbeknownst to them that causes that. You know the way they react or respond to people. So we want to teach people how to do that because once you do that, then that person who's dancing on the side of the dance floor feels more comfortable to come in. Then that person who's from the other side of the world who looks and sounds different says, "Well, I've got an idea," and they can share it. And that idea can just be the difference between you know an ordinary plan and an extraordinary plan. There's, there's so much in what you just said. I'm kind of processing. It's taking me a few seconds to process that, partly because it's I've seen it. I've seen evidence of this over and over and over again, building that trust and being able to tell somebody um, that their body language or the expression they had was eroding trust. And I immediately thought of a situation in a women's group that I'm part of here in Helena when I was the president of the organization and I had my board and I remember seeing a couple of expressions on women's faces while one of the women was speaking. And I remember pulling them aside because I had done that in the past. I had rolled my eyes or looked at my friend and made that face when I was younger. And now I, those are cringe moments, right? Mm. I think back at myself doing things like that. And I just cringe. I'm so embarrassed by that. And these are women in their thirties and I was in my forties and I pulled these women aside after the meeting. And I said, look, you can't do that. We can't have a cohesive board with people giving ideas, no matter how you might think they're irrational or if, if the person isn't being real, whatever it is, your expressions between you, among you are unacceptable. We can't do that in, in this organization. And I quoted Madeline Albright, and I'm so heartbroken to learn that we lost her last weekend. But um, Madeline Albright, one of my favorite quotes, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Mm. And I explained that to them. I said, you don't have to like her. Yeah. I get it. You know, there are personalities that you're just not going to like, but you have to love her. Mm, wow. Wow. That's beautiful. I, I, I had not heard that before. So when you talked about creating that trust and being able to, to call people out on the things that are eroding trust, I, that's just such a, an important, it's a critical part of leadership training. And I had never thought of it that way. I love that you just said that. We, we, um, so as people are reading and working through turnaround artists, um, week six is um, the the, uh, the title of week chapter six uh, is how am I perceived? And so the exercise is to go around and ask people, how do you perceive me, and what would have the greatest impact on my success? Now it's interesting because with my forms at work team. 
we actually just did this exercise last week. So I'm fresh oh. off it. Awesome. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's, um, and, and I'll tell you, it takes courage. You know, it takes um, a willingness to lean in. It takes humility. For both you know, people. For both people. The person asking and the person having to answer their boss. <laughs> and, 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 well, absolutely. It, and in so doing, it's actually an exercise in building trust. Because if you, if somebody doesn't give you the goods, like the real goods, how much trust have you really created? So that in itself is an indication to you, you know? And Mm so some of the things that I, it's interesting. So one person said to me, they said, um, how am I perceived? And there was a lot of sort of positive, you know, humility and building trust and inspiring and all that. So that was great. It was really great to hear that. And it's important. I don't want to sort of, I have to you be have careful. to own those compliments. Yeah, yeah. You have to, to receive them with grace. Hundred <laughs> percent, because that's just as important as the things to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we're so obsessed. I'm so obsessed with like the things to work on, and I got to balance them equally. I think one sports the other. But it's interesting because one of the things the person said, it was how am I in the how am I perceived part was as extremely busy, and and for me that's far from a compliment. I was like, wow, I come across extremely. So if someone seems, sees me as extremely busy, are they going to ask for support? Are they going to, are they going to ask me for support? Probably not. Cause I just seem too busy. So I was like, wow, that's like, that's a blind spot. I need to like be aware of that. Um, someone else mentioned about uh, uh, meeting deadlines, you know? And I was like, Hey, I was thrilled that, and after he said, uh, well, you asked, <laughs> so, of course. wow, this is like such a gift because if you don't tell me, how do I bring this out of my blind spot? You know, and how do I just get better? Um, the following week, which is after we, so the next step of the exercise is we create these, uh, intention statements. So we, so for example, mine is I'm a leader who is diligent and follows and, and adheres to deadlines. And we say that once a day, every day for a week to really kind of get this sort of mantra into our head. One of the reasons is so that the people that gave us the feedback, see that it's like what you were saying earlier, that we heard it and where that we're applying it and that we value what they said and we want to make a difference. The second reason is it's amazing. It's just like what you were saying, like the cringeworthy moment when people roll their eyes. Well, it's when you become aware of something we want people to realize how much of an impact that makes just becoming aware of it. There's, you don't have to do much more. You, there's other steps you have to take, but just becoming aware of something is 60, 70, 80% of the battle, you know? Um, and so we have this like intentional mantra. Uh, I don't know. I got off on this. I thing. love that. I love that. I remember that from the book yeah. and I remember Darius asking and no, seriously, I want to know because the first answer he got was like, "Oh, you're you're great, you do you're great, boss." And he's <laughs> like, "No, seriously, I need to I need to actually know what how I'm being perceived." And I'm like, "Oh yes, <laughs> dance. It's a dance between the two people, and it's and it's part of you know it's part of this this process of understanding how to um, what is it that I'm." doing that makes people comfortable or uncomfortable to open up and share and where are we on that spectrum me and each 
different um, person. And, and just how empowering it is to understand how we're being perceived. It's, you know, there's this thing called the Johari window. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, mm-hmm. but, uh, and so it's like, you know, it's a, it's that it's the blind spots, the things that are um, known to others, but unknown to ourselves. Right. And the only way to really find that out is to ask and to make it safe enough for that person to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's another piece to this whole, how am I being perceived that I do in my keynotes and I'll be doing this, um, a, a few times in April. I'm really excited about it, but the exercise is not just how am I perceived, but how do I want to be perceived? Right. What words do I want people to use mm. when they walk away from me? And talking about what actions you can take consistently, what words you can use consistently so that there's a, a, an alignment there between how you want to be perceived and how people are actually perceiving you. And I think your mantra of having the, I am a leader, a diligent leader who meets deadlines, it it helps you identify that as a value of yours, that this is important to you. And I think about the fact that most people get really, really annoyed by people that are close with them, particularly parents or siblings, and almost all the time, it's because some it's something that bothers them about themselves mm-hmm. that they haven't identified yet. And I just had one last weekend with my mother. I found myself getting all riled up about something she was doing. And then I went, oh, no, I do that. <laughs> it me crazy. There's, uh, there, and I say that, that, you know, with every aha moment, there's like a duh moment, right? Like <laughs> moment of like right awareness. And then it's like, oh, duh, this was like kind of hiding in plain sight. Like this has always been like right there in front of me. <laughs> exactly. How did I wait till I was 52 to notice that? <laughs> that's yeah. just, wow, that sucks. <laughs> and, and yeah, there's, it's like two sides. There's this humility, you know, mm-hmm. then there's like this empowerment. It's like, oh. Like I could just, there's something, I've got like a lever. I can, I can change this thing. Um, yes. It's like Cat's Cradle song, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the, the father, the, the kid who becomes the father. Um, exactly. Do you have to? I mean, you don't, you don't have to, if you, you see it to. in yourself. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap this up and come full circle, you've done a lot of really interesting things, especially in the last 10, 12 years that have, driven you to this point of self-reflection and the idea of evolving and having those aha moments and being able to shift your own way of thinking, because it's the only way that you can model that for other people. So I'm curious, how are you finding that alignment, that balance between that humility, that the aha moments that are like, oh God, I'm so growing (laughs) and being able to accept that praise that you receive, the compliments you receive, because we talked about this at the very beginning of this conversation that we have to be able to receive this with grace if we want others to receive it from us. So how have you found a way to do that? Look, I think it's that. I think it's um, it takes courage to lean into these you know, uncomfortable emotions. And often what we do is we mask it. We, we mask it with distractions, whether they're, you know, visual, cognitive, uh, you know, scrolling or it's 
alcohol or just different ways of kind of masking this uncomfortableness. And, um, and I think we need courage to do that. And, and so where does that courage come from? I think that courage comes from being aware and um, embracing the things that are going well, you know? So we, mm-hmm. so you focus on anything and it, that, that that's all it is. So if you only focus on the things that aren't working or are negative, it becomes the, your worldview or your reality. You focus on the things that are going well, gratitude, you know, and feeling really grateful for things, which is like, you know, the, the third exercise in the book and practicing that that does that gives it that, that, that energy, that courage and that positive reinforcement. It's interesting because we were talking about the importance of giving people positive praise. Um, it's, it, it works when you do it for yourself sincerely, you know, you really recognize that. So it's, we've got this incredible tool and this incredible way to build up our own courage, confidence, um, esteem, and, uh, and all we have to do is just kind of recognize that in ourselves. And again, like everything else we talked about, baby steps, you know, little by little. But um, if it feeds you, you know, to embrace positivity that, that others are giving you and that you're giving to yourself, you keep doing it. And it sort of feeds that courage it takes to, to keep growing and to keep being exposed to both the aha and the, the duh moments. Right, right. Well, that, that's a good answer. I, I appreciate that thoughtfulness. And you're right, it does take courage. And I'm thinking about all the books that I would collect to give to somebody that's curious about our conversation. And the first one is Turnaround Artist, Ahad Gadimi. And there will be a link to purchase that book in the show notes on my website, elkinsconsulting.com and the podcast page. I would also say the art of possibility. Did you read that one? I love that's that's like one of the few one of the few books where this is going to sound a bit ridiculous. I stopped reading it because I didn't want it to end. Oh, I love that. That's ridiculous. So I just finished the book and I read it again. <laughs> but like I, <laughs> I, I love that book. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. My friend Jeff Eichler interviewed those authors on his podcast, uh, Getting Unstuck. And uh, we'll try to put a link in the blog post associated with this podcast to that as well, the book and the podcast interview. Um, And then I was thinking about Brave Leadership by Kimberly Davis, who's a fantastic friend of mine and an amazing book. And then the last one in my head was Bob Berg's The Go-Giver. Oh, yeah. And I think the, the four of those books are like this perfect combination of eyes wide open. How are you going to collect evidence of your success so that you can continue to build on it while still looking in the mirror and having those uncomfortable moments of personal growth? I call those opportunities for growth. I put quotes around that. Um, those, Those are the four books that I would put on a bookshelf for my boys and for my nieces and all the women that I work with, all the men that I work with. But starting with turnaround artists because it's such a great, um, such a great story for understanding the power of the process. Mm-hmm. It's not just going from being a command and control leader to being a thoughtful, caring leader. It's this process that you have to go through, and if you read that first, then you'll get so much more out of the other books. 
Uh, first of all, I, I really appreciate that. Um, uh, I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, and, I, and I love the way you say that. It is a process. It's all process. It's all journey. And I think if you're just on the, it's just a matter of being on the right trajectory, you know, which way are you sort of oriented? And, um, and as human beings, we're wired biologically. So when we're doing it well and we're becoming better leaders and more connected, we feel better and it feels lighter and it feels easier. So there's like kind of a, an intrinsic uh, war <laughs> that tells us that we're getting warm. <laughs> it is. I think it's the same with parenting. Yeah. Uh, the, the same thing happens with parenting. You learn these lessons one at a time. And the, the better you do it, the more connected your kids are to you. And the more um, independent they become if you're doing it right. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. Oh, I love this. This is such a great conversation. So meaty. <laughs> so much in here. I yeah, can't wait to listen to it again after Neil does his editing. Um, for our listeners, I would love to hear how people can get in touch with you and um, what you would want people to know about you, about your work. And then uh, we'll put this in the show notes as well. So if you're listening to this podcast, you don't need to stop what you're doing and write things down. Uh, great. So uh, yeah, I'm, you can easily find me either on LinkedIn or, or through forums at work. Uh, and, and what I want people to know about me and, um, and this work is that um, yeah, that it's just that it, that it, that it's insanely gratifying, you know, and it's insanely gratifying um, to be part of. It's insanely gratifying to impact people so profoundly at work and to, for them to share that that rippled right down to their living room and dining rooms at home. And that, that's really what I'm really in for that. that that's why I'm in it uh, is because I, uh, I've had both experiences where, you know, you parents come home um extremely stressed and, you know, sort of really gone through the ringer at work. And, and when parents feel wonderful, inspired and fulfilled in, in the workplace. And, um, and I think that's a profound way of, um, yeah, improving our, our livelihoods, our workplaces, but also just our family lives. And, it, and I had one person share that very early on that what we were doing at work was impacting his home life. And I just, how I felt in that moment, I'll never forget it. I, uh, I realized that's, that was my mission. That's why you do this work. That's right. Absolutely. It improves the, our global community one ripple at a time. It's amazing right. what that does. Yeah. In a practical you know, way, because it drives business growth and it drives success and drives bottom line results. And that's great because it, that, that uh, justifies the the investment of time and resources and money to to do this in the workplace, but it just creates a lot of happiness and positivity. And it's um, of course it's hard to put an ROI measurement on that. <laughs> well, I, it's not hard to put an ROI measurement on that for me. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> just just how people are at home and in and in their environments outside of work the changes that they experience when they're seen and valued and find their work meaningful. It's we need that more than ever right now. That's right. uh, This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. 
my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've come away with a lot of aha. And a lot of <laughs> Are you ready to start your story portfolio? So you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review. And let me know that you've done it so I can thank you properly. Thank you. Tell me that you're going away